We have a slew of courses at Renegade University now, and you should go to renegadeuniversity.com slash courses to check them out. But coming up soon, in December, we have our next 3D printed guns course. It's called Make Your Own Guns, 3D Printing, and the Glock 17. It'll be taught by Sean Aranda, the 3D print general, who has a very popular 3D printed gun channel on YouTube, and Vin Nguyen, who has personally designed, I think, dozens of 3D printed guns. So these are the guys to take this course from. Go to renegadeuniversity.com slash courses again for more information and to enroll in Make Your Own Guns, 3D Printing, and the Glock 17. I will see you in class. This is the Unregistered Podcast, and I'm Thaddeus Russell. This is a show about ideas, people, and behaviors that are considered inappropriate, out of bounds, or beyond the pale. The things you're not supposed to talk about if you're a school teacher, a college professor, a businessman, a politician, a parent, a neighbor, or even a podcast host. These are the things you're not supposed to say or even think if you're a good liberal, a good conservative, or a good citizen. Each week, I'll interview a person who has something bad to say. They might be a journalist or a professor. They might be a porn star or a drug dealer. They might just be an ordinary person with an ordinary job who doesn't care about the rules of polite society. I'm not interested in breaking the rules just to be a troublemaker. I'm interested in people who break the rules of conventional thought and to expand the scope of what is possible to say in our society. I'm interested in people who make me think. Who exactly runs the world? Is it the United States? Is it China? Or is it both? This is my interview with James Corbett. I am joined from Japan by the great James Corbett, who was on my show uh, several months ago and got a lot of fantastic fan response from that. And um, people want to take courses with you and learn from you how to do independent journalism. And we have a course coming up taught by you, uh, the history of mass media, renegadeuniversity.com. But, you know, your work is just monumental, sir. I, I when I've had you on the show, each time I've spent a lot of time just digging into your work. And I had been following you for years, too. But boy, it is just <laughs> let me ask you about this. What is your what's your work life like? What's your how much time do you spend on on re just the research, just the research, not producing videos, not writing articles? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. It's difficult for me to quantify because. Sure where's the line between just reading something out of interest and doing research. Right. For me, that line is completely blurred by this point because right. almost anything that I find myself interested in could potentially become a topic that I cover and <laughs> often does, mm -hmm. which is why I tend to throughout the course of my work. If people have followed me for a long time, I think that I hope they notice I take weird left turns sometimes and zig when people want me to zag, etc. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because I am following my my personal research interests and things that I'm coming across. So I'm constantly, I mean, everything that I'm reading kind of contributes to be, I suppose, quant to try to quantify it. I would say I spend several hours a day reading various things and okay. then that gets distilled into various videos and articles, et cetera. It's a, it's a mountain of research. So what I want to do at Renegade University someday, soon, hopefully, 
is to simply train more James Corbett's. I just want more of you out there. And I hope you can help us do that. You know, just teach people how you do this. And can we talk a little bit about how you might go about that? Uh, why, how would sure, you? Sure. If you have would, specific questions, I can definitely try to answer them. Well, I mean, hmm. so I was, I would assume there are many, many websites, sites, sources that you have found to be a particularly important that people might not know about that are behind corners or, you know, um, and so I would imagine just sort of laying out the, the map as it were, as to where to go, the kinds of sources, the kinds of sites you want to visit and right. kind of right. research. Um, but I, so what else though, how would, how would one go about making another? Well, let's start orbit? there actually. Let's yeah. start there because yeah. I want to shoot down your first assumption. Okay. I try not to have any super secret sites that no one knows about that I can squirrel right. away from myself. I try mm -hmm. to let people, well, as, as we talked about last time in yeah. a previous conversation about open source journalism, I always try to put the, the direct links to the documentation I'm talking about whenever mm -hmm. I'm doing anything. So people mm -hmm. can see where I'm getting my information from, mm -hmm. but beyond that um, useful sites and things like that, I am actively trying to let people know about because my, my aim is I think the same as yours. I want, not just me, not just you. I want millions of people out there actively engaging in research. You don't have to be a researcher per se. Mm -hmm. um, I, why create those sort of arbitrary distinctions? Everyone, everyone is their own editor in this day and age. I used to mm -hmm. go around saying everyone's a journalist. No, that's not quite true. Everyone's an editor. Um, we have replaced the old editing gatekeeping function with our own work online, digging into things. We can mm -hmm. say, oh, I, you know, that's interesting. Oh, that correlates with something I read over here. And oh, look at that. So I try, I'm def definitely on board with the idea of trying to make everybody as knowledgeable as they want to be, because mm -hmm. in this day and age, you are as knowledgeable as you want to be or are interested in investing your time in. So for example, and specifically, I can talk um, in my Solutions Watch series, it's a regular weekly series I do looking at various aspects of things we can do to actually empower ourselves. And a mm -hmm. large part of that is obviously I'm a researcher, so I try to put it, research resources and tools out there for people to use. One of them that I highlighted a while ago, and I won't be able to remember specifically which episode off the top of my head. One of them that I use is a simple site called feedly.com hmm. where you can subscribe to the RSS feeds of dozens, hundreds, thousands, if you want, of different news websites so hmm. that you will, instead of having to go to each and every website every single day and scroll through and get all the ads and whatever, you go and you create an RSS list of all of these different feeds and you can look at them individually. Like I want to see what's on this site today, or you can look at them all together and just see what's in the news feed hmm. today. And you can quickly go through dozens or hundreds or thousands of articles, depending how quickly you, uh, you want to go through them and just sort of scan the headlines and dig down on the ones you want. That is a great help for someone like myself who wants, I want to see, I want to cast that broad net and then I want to hone in on the things that I'm interested in. And that's a good tool for me to do so. Feedly.com is just one way of doing that. But I think the deeper underlying idea is RSS, really simple syndication, which is a wonderful, valuable, incredible tool that was mm -hmm. developed by people like Aaron Schwartz, uh, rest in peace, mm -hmm. who um, saw the incredible power of this very simple idea. Essentially a website broadcasts this RSS feed, someone takes it and they can put it into their feed reader. And whenever there's an update to the site, it automatically gets downloaded into mm. your feed reader mm. or at least the, the notification. Oh, here, you know, James has a new podcast today or Thaddeus has something up today on, uh, on his site. And so it's incredible and it completely obliterates the need for middlemen 
social media middlemen who uh-huh. have attempted to insert themselves in this conversation. Because look at the uh-huh. uh, websites of 15 years ago where mm-hmm. RSS was the norm and everyone knew what it was. To my surprise, I did that Solutions Watch episode earlier this year talking about RSS, really simple syndication. And at the time, I was thinking, well, everyone knows about this, right? (laughs) I did that episode and I got a ton of feedback from people. I had no idea that existed. That's crazy. Oh, wow. I just downloaded a feed reader. I'm just getting it now. Oh, thank you. So never take it for granted. Something so simple, but it can be really powerful to completely disintermediate something that does not need a middleman sitting in in the middle there. So that's that's one incredibly useful resource. Another one that I pointed out recently was archive.org, which is an incredible treasure trove of information that most people don't know exists. It's been there for a couple decades now, Mm -hmm. and it just kind of flies under the wire. But as I pointed out, they have literally millions, millions of scanned books on Mm -hmm. archive.org that are freely available for borrowing, for, for an hour or for two weeks, you can get loans. You sign up for an account and you borrow the books like a library. It's an online library. And you can. they even have it scanned so you can literally, well, digitally flip through the pages and yep. read the actual text, which I find much more comforting than looking at HTML on a page. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, they also have the television news archive oh. going back to, I believe, 2009 or 10. Oh. And it's literally all the main news networks from the United States, uh, yeah. CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, whatever, all of the main news networks wow. with the captions. So you can search through the captions of the past decade plus of news oh. coverage or any particular topic. Oh. An incredible resource most Whoa. people don't know exists. I did. They have the Understanding 9-11 archive that huh. has television news coverage from about a couple dozen different stations for the entire week from 9-11 to 9-18. Uh, 24 hours of the, all the coverage that was uh, broadcast. You can go and watch it all. Um, just incredible resources like that. Again, most people don't know it exists. It's there for free on the internet. But mm-hmm. if you don't make it part of your regular browsing, how do you know? And I'd like to throw in one more since we've just yeah. passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and 9-11 Truth was obviously a fundament, fundamental and foundational part of what I do. Mm-hmm. History Commons website is such an incredible website. Mm. Historycommons.org, specifically okay. their 9-11 timeline is, for a researcher, it is a playground because it is just, that is what online research should be. It is mm-hmm. essentially, I guess you could say it's like a, like a wiki wiki idea okay. um, where uh, you can you can search by date, you can search by um, name or place or event or something along those lines. But then when you start to drill down on it, for example, if you want to find out everything that we know about uh, Ali Mohammed, you type in Ali <laughs> Mohammed, you search by that entity, and then you see each entry that uh, that has Ali Mohammed in it. And the entry is broken down by a date on this date such and such an event happened. And it, it gives a summary of those events and it gives links to the, uh, the original MSM reports or books or whatever, where that information comes from. Hmm. It sounds like a simple idea, but for if you're genuinely interested in 9-11, it has so much information. It is hmm. truly mind-blowing. And as a 9-11 researcher, I find myself going back there again and again and again. So those are some examples. And again, I'm not trying to hide anything. I try, if I find a good resource like that, I want people to know about them. Right. Open source journalism. Yes, sir. Uh, well, that's two, several fantastic tools. I knew about a couple of them. I didn't know about the TV archive. Uh, that's amazing. So people now have some tools to use, but 
I guess to me, the most important thing in being James Corbett is the questions that you ask Mm -hmm. in being a good journalist, in being a good scholar. It's about the questions you ask. Anybody can walk into a library. Anybody can use historycommons.org, but what do you do with it? Right. And that's, what's important. So what are the questions that you brought to this originally? I mean, big questions, like what are, what were you after, James, you know, in the big picture? What was your curiosity about? What did you really want to get to know? I suppose the fundamental question, like the question that, yeah. at, that is at the base of everything yeah. is the question of how power functions in society. Right. That's the question. And that's a question that when you look at it in that way and when you frame the search in that way, it doesn't sound so outlandish. Oh, what? Mm-hmm. You think there are powerful groups that somehow <laughs> try to control society? Oh, you mm-hmm. silly. <laughs> no, of course. You, and if you're doing that historically, if you're looking at what happened thousands of years ago under mm-hmm. some sort of uh, feudal system, or if you're looking at a, a few hundred years ago, or you can look at different time periods and that's totally fine. But if you look at how power functions in our society today, you're a Mm -hmm. crazy conspiracy theorist. How dare you? So I think that's a good way of contextualizing the bigger question, which is how does power function in our society? And that changes in different time periods Mm -hmm. because of technological reasons, economic reasons, a number of different things. But um, essentially, that's the base question that I'm attempting to to answer. So you have um, identified a dynamic, a power dynamic globally that is different, I suppose, than the way power operated prior to this. And you've talked about a lot. You've talked about the sort of decline of the nation state um, in its import. And you've talked about the rise of, well, you sometimes, I don't know, what do you call it? The ruling class, you call it sometimes the elites. Um, what do you have a name for for the people at the top who we will talk about specifically in a minute? But, you know, just the, the people you have identified as the ruling class of the globe. What what do you call them? I have uh, tried to eliminate elites from my vocabulary okay. because that actually places them on the pedestal that I think they like to see see themselves. So I try to say elitists, oh. <laughs> um, which okay. perhaps frames it a little bit better. OK, but yeah, um, I mean, that's an interesting question because it comes down to the identification. OK, we can identify this particular group that controls everything. Mm -hmm. Thus, that seems to imply to people, okay, now now we have our solution. Get rid of that group and everything's better, which to me is, yeah, Disney version of how uh, reality operates. It doesn't Mm -hmm. operate that way. And I think power is multivariate. There are various Mm. different competing power factions in various conglomerations, and they do come together on uh, matters of convenience, on particular agenda items. They will war on other agenda items. They will pretend to war at times so that they can lead people through thesis, antithesis, to synthesis. So the idea that we can distill that down to, oh, here's the one group, is a, perhaps naive. And I think that's best illustrated. If people go back to my World War I conspiracy documentary, I talked about the Cecil Rhodes round table, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. specifically because one of the things that Cecil Rhodes made sure to do when con- creating his secret society and the people around him um, wanted to happen was don't give it a name. Don't make it some sort of identifiable <laughs> organized structure. No, no, no. We're just people who know each other. Mm-hmm. We meet and we have different bodies through which we operate, but those aren't us. 
-hmm. We are separate from that. And we know what's going on. The people on the outside may have some dim understanding, but uh, the further out you go, the less understanding they have. And if we give ourselves a name, and if we say we pin it down to that, then we become that identifiable group that can then be cast out. So that's actually a stupid thing on the behalf of people who actually want to wield power is to become some sort of identifiable group or clique. Uh, the, uh, long story short, I think it's a bit too limiting to say that we can identify it. So yes, elitist, mm-hmm. globalist, whatever. I mean, again, there's these are just names that I'm using to gesture towards the idea of a power structure that in itself, I mean, we see we look from the bottom of the power pyramid and we see an all-seeing eye in a capstone. We have no idea about the internal politics of what's going on in the capstone. So, okay. So I have a hypothesis about what's going on in the world right now, and it's largely inspired by you, um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misinterpreted your argument. The way I'm seeing things, and this is a hypothesis, I don't know, this is tentative, but is that there is, there seems to be, there certainly seems to be, and there's a whole lot of evidence, most of which I've learned from you, of a growing, emerging alliance, maybe alliance is too strong, um, cooperation maybe, among I guess three entities in particular, Western, Western social democratic political leaders, European social democratic uh, political leaders, American progressive liberal democratic party people, and the Chinese communist party. Um, That there is something going on has been among those three groups roughly defined um, that's looking like increasingly a deal, a deal to co-manage the world's political economy. Uh, Is that a decent representation of your thesis on this? Almost. I wouldn't locate that nexus of power at the political level. Okay. Um, I understand what you're saying, and I think there is such a deal, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it takes place on the political level. I think the political level are the shadows that are cast by the people who are actually doing these deals. Right. Um, And the best way I've found to articulate this um, was I tried to put it together in an editorial I wrote earlier this year called How to Play 3D Chess, Mm -hmm. where I talked about that concept of 3D chess, which Mm -hmm. has broken into the public consciousness by now. (laughs) I want to say when I first formulated this several years ago, it wasn't part of the lexicon. It was was way before Trump. James Corbett. Invented that, everyone. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I didn't invent it. But okay. anyway, I, <laughs> right. I was talking about it years ago okay. in my defense. But I think it is the right way to look at this because it um, frames things in, in the idea that there is the 2D chessboard. And so we do have European democratic socialist political leaders and American versions thereof. And we have Chinese political leaders. And they do, uh, when when you're looking at the way they move on this chessboard, mm-hmm. it seems odd at times to the point where you don't necessarily even know, wait, are you on the white team or the black team? Which mm-hmm. team are you on? And well, how did mm-hmm. where, where did that piece come from? It just appeared on the board. Like if you're just looking at the 2D nation state paradigm, yep. you do not understand the moves that are taking place on the chessboard because you don't understand. It's not a 2D chessboard. It's a 3D chessboard. And there are moves happening on different layers that will affect what's happening on the right. So, I mean, so for instance, you know, Joe Biden and even European social democratic leaders will sometimes say things that sound really bellicose toward China, right? Really like they like they're enemies of China, that they want to do something against China. But then we turn then the next day they do something just the opposite. That looks like they are in league with China, the Chinese Communist Party, I should say. Um, Is that what you mean? 
Yes, essentially. And the way I frame that is collaborationists and cold warriors. Yeah. And I think there there is a class in the nation state structure that does not really understand the 3D game that's going on and genuinely are cold warriors or vision themselves as such and genuinely see the battle between nation states and genuinely work in what they think is their own nation state interest. And I think those cold warriors are used as useful dupes by the collaborationists who know, oh, there's a much bigger game that's going on that we can play both sides, essentially, mm -hmm. in order to achieve a greater agenda. So you have this fantastic video that you, um, it's episode 297 of the Corbett Report, which you released in 2014. Um, I think it's called China and the New World Order. Is that right? That okay. is correct. Um, in which you lay out, it's about six, 70 minutes, I think the video is. You lay out a bunch of historical facts leading up, of course, to 2014. But a lot has happened since 2014. So would you mind doing some of the history and then talking about more of the recent history? Yes, certainly. So I started that um, podcast by going through just, again, some of the 2D moves that seem strange or contradictory. You, you have obviously some sort of warmongering and bellicose, as you say, statements about China and the evil Chinese, the new red menace and all of this. And I think that's pretty apparent at this stage, especially this week. Now we're hearing China is flying over Taiwan and right. uh oh, guys, it's coming on. So right. definitely a timely conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but then I counter that with the statements of people like Evelyn de Rothschild of singing the praises of uh, China and its economic miracle, or Richard Rockefeller talking about the Rockefeller brothers and their long-term mm -hmm. involvement in China, or George Soros talking about, you really need to bring China into the creation of a new world order, uh, a financial world order. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, uh, Henry Kissinger, of course, mm -hmm. talking about uh, China and its importance as Big New Brzezinski. So then you start thinking, okay, well, that's that's odd because these are clearly power players yeah. on the international scene, not people who are sitting in political office, but that's right. again, in my thesis, that's because right. that would be a demotion for them. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> they're clearly, they're clearly talking about the creation of some sort of bigger architecture that they want to insert themselves into or control in some ways. So from that point, I start looking at some of the specific history. And uh, with regard to that, I mean, there are just some fascinating little nuggets that I uncovered along the way. Um, for example, in that episode, I talked about um, Yale in China, um, yeah. <laughs> which was a series of institutions, the, uh, the Yale Divinity School and other things that existed in China in the early 20th century that for some reason or other, um, hired a young editor for one of their journals by the name of Mao Zedong. <laughs> and apparently he was not a student in any way affiliated with Yale, but they asked him to edit one of their journals to begin thought reorientation towards yeah ultimately a communist mindset, okay. which was odd. Um, uh, another, uh, I'll throw this other resource in there because uh, I think a lot of people probably, even in my audience, haven't uh, seen it or heard about it. I'm not going to remember the, uh, the episode number right off the top of my head, but I did one on AIG and the history of AIG, which is fascinating because American International Group, AIG, this big insur insurance underwriter, mm -hmm. uh, actually got its start in China. In 1919, as the Asiatic American Underwriters wow. um, by Cornelius Vanderstar, who is a character with a lot of interesting connections, <laughs> probably least of which is his famous, I, I want to say nephew off the top of my head, Kenneth Starr, oh. who you will remember, <laughs> prosecuted Clinton for a blowjob. No way. <laughs> um, forget all that Whitewater stuff. This is what we need to concentrate on. Right. But uh, Cornelius Vanderstar started uh, AIG as Asiatic American Underwriters in 1919 in Shanghai. 
uh, had to clear out, obviously, during World War II and mm-hmm. all of the international political kerfuffle and the Japanese occupation and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the OSS in the forerunner to the CIA mm-hmm. um, started a insurance unit in the 1940s that made use of, amongst other things, the information provided by Star to the OSS on all of the business details. It knows about businesses and what resources they have and where they're kept and how they're transported and all of these specific details of business that relate exactly to what an insurance company needs to know and also what an intelligence agency wants to know about how a country is actually functioning Mm -hmm. match made in heaven. So there's this uh, fascinating article that was, I believe LA times, I want to say back in the 1990s called the secret insurance agent men um, that went into that fascinating history. So there's, there's Hmm. a rich mind to be explored there. And that leads from AIG into such things as the blacks, black, black rock, and then black stone group. Um, which are now these monumental, massive um, asset uh, managers that have trillions of dollars of wealth under their management, uh, including, of course, in China, as they are making Mm -hmm. headway in that country. Mm -hmm. Um, And this ties into uh, a specific thread that you can trace that leads from the opening of China, which was really spearheaded by Kissinger, not Nixon. Kissinger preceded Nixon to China by one year in a series of secret meetings that was not admitted to the public till years later. Um, now you can go and ro- watch documentaries about it and see the footage of Nixon in China, uh, Kissinger in China, etc. But that wasn't known at the time. Everyone thought Nixon just decided to do this or something. Mm-hmm. No, it was Kissinger. And it's no secret who Kissinger was working for. He was picked out of a CFR working group on nuclear um, nuclear armaments in the 1950s by the Rockefellers. He became, he was in the orbit of Nelson Rockefeller uh-huh. um, and he eventually fell into the orbit of David Rockefeller and was working as the Rockefeller emissary. And it's no surprise then that one of the first people that in the opening up of China that followed from Nixon's visit, Kissinger's visit in the 1970s, uh, you had Rong Yi Ren of CIDIC, which is the Chinese state-owned insurance, uh, sorry, investment um, arm, mm-hmm. which uh, who knows how many billions and at this point, probably trillions they have under management, Mm -hmm. uh, in 1980, went to New York to meet with David Rockefeller and a legion of other bankers to set the financial architecture Mm -hmm. that uh, laid the groundwork for the investment, the massive influx of corporate investment that followed in the 1990s. And I go through that in that episode, talking about Microsoft and General Motors and a million other businesses that Mm -hmm. in the 1990s started flooding R&D money into China that has flowered into manufacturing base that has become the economic juggernaut. But part of those R&D deals and the economic um, uh, decisions that were being made in that time uh, to to create corporate headquarters and and, uh, uh, offices in China was the signing of contracts that, well, you have to give us all your your intellectual property that you develop here or anything that you're using here Mm. now becomes ownership of the CCP, which makes you think, well, why would these... Why would these capitalists who hate the communists, yeah. why would they be supporting this communist government? Maybe there's right. something deeper going on here. <laughs> and that's where I try to tie it back to the research of people like Anthony Sutton uh, at Hoover, got mm-hmm. kicked out of Hoover for getting a little too close to the bone, I think, talking about mm-hmm. technology transfer to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And he was pointing out at the time, you know, when you look at the Wall Street, uh, the sorry, the Bolshevik Revolution, there's all these Wall Street figures behind it, funding it, um, aiding it, literally going to Moscow and helping out in the Bolshevik Revolution. Why? What on earth is going on? 
Oh, it's because the real deal here, the real name of the game is monopolization. Monopolization of wealth and resources. And any way that that can be accomplished is to the good. And here's China. They have a way that they've obviously monopolized the wealth of the resources of the nation of China mm -hmm. and put it under the umbrella of the CCP. Uh, we can work with them. And so they did. Specifically, there were eight families that are referred to as the eight immortals, yeah. uh, the red nobility. There's other yeah. names that are used for them. These are a group yeah. of eight people, cadre that fought with Mao in the original revolution, mm -hmm. who became leaders of the what was called the capitalist road movement, the, the reform movement. When Mao Zedong died, Deng Xiaoping took over. They started opening up the Chinese economy. And now those eight families, and specifically their offspring, are now monumentally wealthy and have all sorts of business connections into the wider business world uh, internationally. And that's where you start to see, oh yeah, the political leaders are playing a game at the 2D level, but then you have the eight immortals and other, other factors like this that never get talked about. And to the extent that they do get exposed, like they were in a Bloomberg, a series of Bloomberg articles in 2012, mm -hmm. that immediately got quashed. That whole investigation got quashed and canned by Michael Bloomberg, a significant portion of whose 50 billion plus net worth comes from selling Bloomberg terminals, including to places like China. So mm -hmm. he got the tap on the so sh shoulder from the CCP or the people running the CCP. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, he, he got told, we don't want that in our country. So they quashed that investigation, unsurprisingly. These are the places that you can't inquire into because they reveal what the game is really about. Okay, fantastic. So let's do, I want to do some of the deeper, earlier history. Um, go back to that. So you locate the Rockefellers and AIG at the early 20th century as being among the first to invest. Rockefellers, AIG, Yale. Yale, Yale, which ties into, of course, to Skull and Bones. Yale, right. And it was no coincidence, uh, as was pointed out in, I think, the 1990s, that every single ambassador to China since the opening up in the 70s, up to that point in the 1990s, save for one, had been a former Skull and Bonesman. Right. Yeah. Okay. So before World War II, here's what I know. I mean, you had in the, in the 19th century, you had American missionaries flooding into China and converting people right and left or not, but certainly trying to. And you had many, many, many American missionaries throughout that period who, who remained into the 20th century, but they had a major impact in the 19th century in China. Um, and um, then you have these people who emerge around the turn of the 20th century who are known as the China hands, who are, you know, often that's referring to scholars, people who studied China, but who developed sort of an affinity for China in doing so. And many of those people, and I'm talking about professors, people in universities who studied China, but liked China. And then they ended up, many of them ended up in places like the State Department or the Department of Defense or something like that, or the CIA. And then once they're in the federal government working on China's, Chinese issues, China issues, the argument goes, maybe they developed inappropriate ties to China. But that's sort of the earlier. I'm trying to get at why? <laughs> why? Is it simply that China is so big and has so many people and is therefore such a big market? And that's why it's so important and such a, a major object for American foreign policy leaders and others. Is that it? Or is, I mean, why are the Rockefellers interested in it other than it was one monopolist, meaning another monopolist? Um, yeah, I mean, why, capitalists, American capitalists, Western capitalists, I understand liking uh, another monopoly that they might be able to co-opt, but is there more to it than that? I mean, it seems like almost a religious fervor, a, mm. a, a religious like, 
attachment to China. The Chinese, the China hands mm. used to be accused of that, of having sort of a romantic, sentimental attachment to China. And it, I, I don't know, is it simply about economics and power or might there be something more going on? Something ideological, maybe? Something cultural? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, as always, I think there are a number of different motives that take yeah. place all simultaneously. And right. I, extracting one from the other or prioritizing one and another may be more of a question of psychology, psychologizing individuals and their own motivations in this. But surely there is some element of Orientalism and sort of the idea mm -hmm of this exotic, you know, ancient civilization. And it was interesting. Uh, I recently started rewatching the Connections series. Do you remember that program mm. from the 1970s? Uh, oh, yeah, I do. That's BBC right. BBC program, James yes. Burke. And yes. I was just rewatching it because I was writing about it in a recent editorial. And uh, it was interesting. He was going through the history of the development of, you know, this and that and gunpowder and what have you and kept going back to, well, actually, that was developed in China hundreds of years before. But in Europe, it was developed this way. And mm -hmm. he mentioned that enough times that I thought, oh, yeah, you know, China really is an ancient civilization that really has preceded. And there's that famous quote um, uh, that I'm going to butcher off the top of my head, but there was the quote of the, the Chinese leader meeting with an American leader, no, French president. I don't remember the context of it, but something along the lines of uh, what do you think about the uh, the effects of the uh, the French Revolution? And the Chinese leader is purported to have said, uh, it's too early to tell. Um, that that <laughs> comment, that quote is probably apocryphal, but it it's the mindset that I think at least Westerners approach the sort of Oriental mm -hmm. mindset. Oh, it's, you know, they have this big sweeping thousands of years of history to look at. Mm -hmm. So they, they keep things in the big perspective. We're concentrating on little pockets of time. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, yeah, I think the idea of conquering the world, if that is a real goal, not just some sort of phrase or some sort of thing to be parodied in comic book supervillains, but if that is a real mm -hmm. goal, you have to take into account, obviously, a huge proportion of the world population in and of itself, but also through its vast cultural influence throughout the entire Asian region, obviously, you have to grapple with China and its ancient civilization in some way or other. And that might mean accommodating them with a seat at the poker table. Um, obviously, you want to give them the losing hand, but you got to deal them into the into the table, into the game, right? So I think that's an, that's sort of one of the overarching things. But that doesn't dis discount the idea that there's the profit motive and other such things at sure. work here. Absolutely, of course. I mean, sure. corporations can absolutely be lured by the fact, here's a billion plus people in a, this market that you'll be able to sell to. Of course, that's the, the obvious carrot that they dangle in front of a lot of people who are involved in this agenda. If you are a capitalist at the level of a Rockefeller, or if you are a political leader at the level of Henry Kissinger, and you are interested in maintaining social order or creating social order over which you are the powerful one, um, and you're interested in maintaining control over the people generally, which you know anybody who's intelligent who wants you know social power is seeking that, I would imagine the traditional American ethos of individualism is going to be a problem for you. Uh, and so that I would imagine if you're that kind of person who's interested in managing huge swaths of the population, right? Huge swaths of the earth's surface. If you're that kind of person, I would imagine the Chinese traditional culture might be more attractive to you with all of its collectivism, with all its talk of the people, with its deference to authority, with its 
with you know no First Amendment, no tradition of freedom of speech, all those things that, again, if you're interested in control and management of populations, that's a way more attractive cultural tradition than American cultural traditions, I would think. That, that might be a possible attraction for them, the Western elites who are doing this? Uh, it certainly is. We don't, again, we don't have to necessarily speculate about sure. that. We can turn to particular things from the historical record. And right. on that note, yeah, I would direct people to episode 350 of the Corporate okay. Report, Pod- Report podcast, History is Written by the Winners, mm-hmm. where I looked at the idea of, um, amongst other things, but also foundation uh, foundation funding towards specific goals. Uh, so these philanthropic organizations that developed in the early 20th century as a way to essentially launder the unimaginable wealth of the robber barons. Oh, look, they're giving giving it away in philanthropy. Yay, sunshine and rainbows. Uh, in reality, was a much different agenda than they were portraying to the public. And we have that from actual congressional investigations that went on, but were largely undermined. Um, like the Reese Committee investigation into tax-exempt foundations. And I, uh, for example, played the clip of Norman Dodd, which was one of their key researchers on that committee, who was talking about the meeting minutes that they had access to of the Carnegie Endowment um, from the founding of the Carnegie Endowment for the first two years there in the early 1910s, uh, where the board discussed in most learned terms um, the, the idea, the question, if you want to control a society, what is the most uh, effective way of doing that. And right. they hit upon the idea after a year of very learned discussion, they hit upon the idea, there is no more effective way of trying to shape or control a society than war. So they set about trying to uh, take over the apparatus of the State Department in order to steer America into a war. And we're talking 1912, 1913, oh. that time period, yeah. mm-hmm. as we're approaching World War One. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? They're in the meeting minutes, at least according to this researcher of this particular congressional committee. So as always, dr- drill down and see what can be verified and triangulated there. But amazing. A, a very interesting piece of that puzzle. Yeah. So that gives you an mi- idea wow. into the mindset of these supposed philanthropic foundations and how they can be used for, um, for, for more political, let alone social Uh, let alone economic agendas. And that's, I think, the way that we need to approach this. And that ties in, I think, to the work of someone like Anthony Sutton. I keep gesturing towards my bookshelf in the hope that you'll see Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution on my bookshelf (laughs) there. Um, Because uh, that was essentially his thesis. Yes, again, why would the capitalists be supporting the Soviet Union as they demonstrably were through technology transfers and other Mm -hmm. types of economic assistance that made the Soviet Union continue to be able to limp along for as long as it did? Why would they do that? Um, There is a number of reasons, again, one of which, of course, is to have the convenient boogeyman that then justifies everything in response. Like, for example, the uh, the incoming Kennedy administration was told about the missile gap, the missile gap, the missile gap. Oh, mm-hmm. OK, we need to build up our nuclear arsenal. Oh, it's a big nuclear war. And then years later, Kennedy discovers, oh, it was all total nonsense. It's, it's not real at all. We have a huge lead on them. That was all just garbage that was being fed to me by the grand corporation. Who are they? Where did they come from? Again, it all circles around the same players and the same motivations to uh, shift and direct society in this or that direction based on and sometimes boogeymen, sometimes boogeymen that are created, but become real in a sense, in a sense that they become genuine threats. And I say that because one thing that we lose sight of, if we're, if we're concentrating on the 3D aspects of the chess game to the exclusion of the 2D 
aspects, we might think to ourselves, it's all a show and it's all just smoke and mirrors. And there's, yeah, okay, they're trying to take over economically, but there's there's no actual conflict that's going to come. Well, I'm sure people were thinking something along those lines pre-World War I, pre-World War II. Oh, it's, you know, there's, yeah, don't worry. It's not actually going to eventuate into war until it does. And that's something that I think needs to be confronted as well, is that we can tend to think, once again, if we're not thinking like psychopaths, which is the way I pathologize the people in mm -hmm. positions of real power, if we're not thinking like that, we don't understand the willingness, the readiness to to spill blood, to sacrifice millions of people, if need be, even their own fellow countrymen, quote unquote, um, in the service of their greater agenda. And until yeah. we wrap ourselves around that, we'll never really be able to understand, yes, all this China boogeyman buildups, whatever is happening right now, may be smoke and mirrors, and it may be Cold War 2.0, and it may limp along for half a century and then just fall apart, or they might use it for an actual hot war scenario, and we shouldn't discount that. Okay. So you identify people you call collaborationists. These would be like the Sinophiles, I suppose, uh, or Sinophiles. Um, and then there's the cold warriors, the anti-Chinese hawks. Uh, and you're saying that neither one is correct, but you're also saying that the collaborationists, am I right, use the hawks to advance their agenda? Yes. I, I kind of, I've heard you say this a couple of times and I'm not super yeah. clear on it. So if you could lay that argument out again, I'd appreciate it. Okay. So the collaborationists are uh, the people like the Kissingers or whatever, yeah. who are the, the grease um, that are making the deals happen mm -hmm. um, behind the scenes generally, mm -hmm. sometimes they get a bit of attention, but they want, uh, essentially, as I say, they want to deal China into the poker game and they want these guys to have a seat at the table. You're going to have a hand, but they want them to have the losing hand. So they have to maintain oh. some sort of threat of power. Oh, no, don't worry. We have our oh. military and we can okay. unleash it upon you at any time. Okay. You will do what we say, but we'll let you in. You can play the game as long as you control your population in the way we want, etc. That's the way I envision collaborationists using the Cold Warriors as the dog on the leash. Oh, we don't want to let the dog off the leash. Gotcha. Okay, so the collaborationists you are saying do want to have the superior position in this partnership. I think okay. so. Okay. That was, that's been unclear to me. I wasn't, I mean, a lot of people who are kind of on your side of this more or less suggest that China is calling the shots and China, and that the American elites are actually uh, surrendering some of their power possibly to the Chinese communist party. I don't know. Is that not read right? No, no, I don't, I don't see it in that way. I, 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 uh, yes, you see that um, uh, pre predominantly in right wing independent yeah. alternative media. Yeah. Um, as I, I think just a reflection of the, the Sinophobe si side of the Sinophile Sinophobe debate. And yeah. so they frame again within the 2D debate, they think it's the real nation state clash that's coming in. Rah, rah, America, down with China. There and look, you know, Biden, Biden is cutting these deals with China. It's Biden doing it, I tell you. And so we got to get rid of these damn Dems from power and then we can go and take on China. I think that's all in service of the, I mean, they're the cold warriors dupes, essentially. If if the collaborationists dupes are the cold warriors, the cold warriors dupes are the people who go around citing this as if as if this is the real solution to the conflict. Okay. So it's they use they use the Sino uh they use the hawks, the anti-China hawks as the stick to get them into agreements and deals. Okay. That's so the way yeah, I envision it. Yeah. Okay. Um you don't have smoking gun proof of that but that's just sort of what you i certainly surmise. do know this is yeah. an analysis yeah you surmise yes. that okay um yeah. well so gosh the idea of western elites admiring and seeking to emulate chinese 
solutions to issues, to problems. You know, this has been recent. So two big issues recently, climate change and COVID. You know, guess what? Guess what they did? They said, they have said for many years now about climate change, but also COVID. Uh, hey, they did it right. They did it right. We should do this. We should follow their lead. And, you know, that's remarkable. That's just recent. But I, it's been going back for 100 years. Western elites looking to China as a model. Right. And yes. so, again, this is like I think it's I think it's the Western elites who come out of what we would call a progressive mindset or progressive culture, progressive ideology. There are many Western elites who are not. There are many big capitalists who don't have that ideology. They don't really care about managing society or any of that. They just want a big business and get rich and whatever. Uh, but those who did come out of that sort of Northeast, you know, liberal intelligentsia milieu, I would imagine, as I said, the Chinese culture traditionally and under communism is more attractive in many ways than the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. You know, I'm just thinking on the fly here, but yeah. let's try to create a distinction. I think so. Yes. Um but I don't think capitalism or communism or progressivism is the right way of capturing the governance paradigm that these people are lusting after, which to me, it, yes, it certainly is weaponized political progressivism. It is from the progressive ideology that we talked about in our last conversation yeah. and from that milieu and from those ideas, mm -hmm. but it manifests politically as technocracy. Okay. And I think if we see it from that perspective, then the communist system, in China, where there is private business and there is there are private um, businessmen who are able to hold various degrees of wealth and uh, the various accommodations are made here and there. It's not communist, is it? It's no. in the in the way that uh, the America capitalist, but there's all the different forms of government regulation and other mm -hmm. things that uh, make it state capitalism, state mm -hmm. communism. It's technocracy. It is a way of trying to put uh, a management system overlay over top of a population. And technocracy comes with it, the sort of double meaning, which wasn't there originally. Well, it kind of was. They're, the idea of technical elite are going to be yeah. the, the experts who steward over society. But mm -hmm. now it has that very pronounced technological flavor where the ideas can be implemented by a technology that was scarcely imaginable a century ago when technocracy was first being formulated mm -hmm. of instant facial recognition camera network that integrates throughout the entire country so that you can't go more than a few minutes without being spotted. And, and if you jaywalk, you can be instantly fined because your mobile app with your wallet is tied into the Chinese government and all of these other crazy things that wouldn't have been imaginable a century ago now are here. And I think that's the aspect of what is being lusted after that degree of technocratic control over the population. I want to add one word to technocracy. I want to add corporatist technocracy. Would you go with that? I wouldn't object. No. Yeah. Because I mean, that's the particular form it takes, isn't it? And it's, uh, it's not communism and it's not capitalism. It is corporatism. It is. I, well, I, yeah, exactly. I was going to say fascism, but corporatism has less of the baggage, but yes, that's yeah, what which we all know, or many of us know corporatism is the, the, the foundation of fascism, but yeah, it doesn't have to be fascist, but it, you know, it's <laughs> the Italian and German government. Well, it's interesting. Yes. I mean, yeah. just the language itself is so interesting in the way it has yeah. been weaponized. And, and then uh, and now fascist has been so politicized, obviously, in such deep mm -hmm. cultural divisions over the past several years, specifically that it it's such a radioactive term that you you're bringing in all sorts of baggage that you mm -hmm. don't mean with it. Meanwhile, public private partnership 
What could be sweeter than that? Such exactly. mother's milk, right? But that's the foundation of the new economic paradigm that's that's at the heart of the Great Reset. Look at any of the Great Reset type of um, rhetoric they're putting out. It's all about public-private partnerships and stakeholder capitalism and all of these ways that they're trying to reformulate it to be corporatist, essentially corporatist technocracy. For those who don't know, corporatism usually refers to um, the cooperation of government and big business in managing the political economy. Um, sometimes it's just the industry they're operating in. Sometimes it's the entire economy. Sometimes it's deciding whether to go to war, but it's that. It is it is the, the merger alliance of government with business, although government always holds the upper hand in that relationship, at least in Germany and Italy and in China and in the United States, it always has. But these are countries with a corporatist model. Now, the corporatism in China comes out of a communist model, so it's a little bit different. But now we have, and since the 70s, we have, as everyone knows, we have, I, I guess, privately owned businesses in China, but who are managed and regulated tightly by the central government, correct? So that is essentially corporatism, is it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly that. I mean, everyone, I, I think at this point, everyone knows that if you're going to be a, a certainly a large private enterprise in China, you're not going to do so without either being actually a literal card carrying member of the Chinese Communist Party or in right. in bed economically or politically with someone who is. Yeah. And so and here, you know, just one example is so the federal government, the Congress calls Mark Zuckerberg to Washington to testify at a hearing, but he's actually lectured to about what he's supposed to do with Facebook, what he must do. And he goes back to San Francisco and he censors everybody and throws people off Facebook and does what he's supposed to do by the government, right? That's corporatism. I mean, that's that's him cooperating quite willingly and enthusiastically with the government. Yeah, that's the that's the other part of it. It might sound like Zuckerberg's this great guy, but he's being forced by the government. Oh, well, I mean, you know, if I were if if I had all of the entire U.S. Senate telling me <laughs> I needed to do something, I might think twice. Also, fair before, enough. Yeah, before I, I mean, it is a real threat with real teeth. So yeah. I don't think there would be much uh, avenue for resistance to that. But um, I don't think that these big tech overlords are crying about being thrown in the briar patch. Yeah, exactly. So let's go back to the, you know, the famous China boom or miracle uh, beginning in the 70s. So, you know, Nixon, the story was that Nixon went there and opened up trade with China. But actually, the story is that Kissinger went there a year earlier and opened up trade with China, but at the behest of the Rockefellers and other people like that. Um, so, but since then, uh, and you talked about this a bit, the investment by U.S. corporations into research and development in China. But let's let's be a little more specific here. Talk about the history of the '70s and '80s in China, and what was the real story of the the Chinese miracle that we're all talking about today? What what really caused that? Okay, excellent. Yes. Okay. So, um, I, I, again, I think you have to see this in the framing of uh, the the original. Um, meetings that were taking place after the political opening, because the political opening, of course, is just reestablishing of diplomatic relations, etc. Right. But the meat and potatoes is in the actual deals that are being done on more mm -hmm. of the business level. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been a, a, a few places where we can get a taste of what that uh, that that idea was. Um, one of which was a, a work called "Towards Capitalist Restoration" by uh, Michelle Chostodovsky of the Center for Re Research on Globalization from 1986, where he was documenting the 1979 visit of Deng Xiaoping to the U.S. was followed in June 1980 by the equally significant encounter in Wall Street of Rong Yiren, chairman of Citic, and David Rockefeller. The meeting, held in the penthouse of the Chase Manhattan Bank complex, was attended by senior executives of close to 300 major U.S. corporations. <laughs> A major agreement was reached between Chase, Citic, and the Bank of China, 
involving the exchange of specialists and technical personnel to identify and define those areas of the Chinese economy most susceptible to American technology and capital infusion. And that's where you start to get the Chinese state-owned enterprises that are in the orbit of CIDIC um, uh, cutting various deals with American businesses. And that's where you get the rise of the eight immortals and their incredible wealth, the so-called uh, uh, capitalist red nobility in China. And from that point um, is where I think the, the, in, the financial groundwork was laid, essentially, for the deals that would, as I say, eventuate in that R&D money that poured in in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, gave, I gave some examples in that China and the New World Order uh, episode where I talked about some examples. Um, HP China Limited, for example, established in Beijing in 1985. Um, HP, HP China Investment Co. Limited established in 1995. HP Building in uh, Beijing was opened in 1998. And then you have Matsushita, Matsushita HP partner, um, transferred regional headquarters to China in 2002. Um, and that's just one sliver of it. You have DuPont, Ford, General Electric, General Motors, IBM, Intel, Lucent Technologies, Microsoft, Motorola, and you have literally a quadrupling of investment by US-based multinational corporations in China from 1994 to 2001, from $2.6 billion to $10.5 billion in the space of, what, seven years? Um, clearly, there was, I mean, a whistle was blown and billions upon billions started flooding into China. And then, because keep in mind, this rise of the red Chinese dragon and all of this, we tend to think of that 21st century. We don't mm -hmm. tend to think of that 1990s, mm -hmm. you know, who was thinking of China as some sort of economic juggernaut at that time? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. This was the groundwork that was being laid that flowered into and was a product of the offshoring, not just of manufacturing, although obviously that's that's the big issue that most people see, mm -hmm. but also the research and development, which led to the structural sort of changes to the Chinese economy, or it facilitated some of those structural changes. Um, and the way that the Chinese economy has now become a player on AI and these other things, which then feeds into the Cold Warrior narrative of the Sinophobes of, look, they might beat us to the AI, you know, mm -hmm. supercomputer. We, we, so we need to invest more in brain chips and Neuralink and all of this sort of stuff. So, because we don't want them to get it. So you see how it all feeds into each itself as sort of this this ever growing propaganda matrix. So what when was the meeting of the CCP rep and the 300 corporations in New York? Was that 1980? 1980. 1980. Um, so, I mean, that could simply be, couldn't it be just a gold rush? You know, just a bunch of corporations seeing a giant market opening yeah. and running yeah, to yeah. it. And what instead and, of and, yeah, make no mistake. I think a lot of people participating in this are participating in the gold rush. I don't think of, they're necessarily going in as part of some sort of elaborate 3D chess plan. That's what I no, mean. No, they have their own interest at stake here. And okay. it's a very straightforward monetary interest. I mean, okay. why wouldn't you? It, there's a gold rush. Let's go. But you're saying they're being used in some coordinated effort to I, I think it's significant that that is preceded by Kissinger. It's preceded by Rockefeller. It's these people who are starting okay. the process of opening up. It was, I mean, I, from our perspective today, it's hard to imagine how unthinkable it was that Nixon would go to China. That was like mind-blowing for people. What? Nixon going to China in the midst of the Cold War? Why are yeah. we collaborating with the communists? Nixon doing it on the Republican side? What's happening? Uh, that was a huge step. 
Um, and it was, again, it was facilitated by these people laying the groundwork for it. And I think we see that throughout this whole process. Yes, uh, obviously people flood in afterwards because the gold rush is there. But mm -hmm. who's starting? Who's blowing that whistle? Who's letting people know that the gold rush is starting? But would you call that coordinated, though? A coordinated effort? Not, I mean, not in the sense that there's some sort of smoky boardroom where everyone gets yeah. together and all they all know, are in on the plan. No, no, no. But that, again, that isn't my uh, idea of how power actually functions. Right. Um, th there's an understanding that is shared by groups that have similar interests and various parts of agenda items. And we look mm -hmm. at that in a, in a specific organization or institution, like, for example, the Council on Foreign Relations, thousands and thousands of members. Mm -hmm. Is everyone some inside collaborationist who knows the whole plan for the new world order or something? Of course not. That's ridiculous. But they like to think of themselves as part of a club and they get some you know, information. They get to hang out at the cool meetings with the rich billionaires and they get to know this and that. And then, oh, you know, I hear China's the place to go. There's a mm -hmm. lot of money to be there. Oh, okay. Right. And that's, so you can direct people without them being coordinated in that sense. Gotcha. Okay. So the story is, of course, that the standard story is that China's rich now because they opened up their economy and allowed a free market or some free market in their economy. Um, and you're saying that's, that may have facilitated this, but it was really, it was maybe not coordinated, but a concerted, concerted effort by many, many, many major American businesses to invest research and development directly into China and establish beachheads inside China. Right. Um, yes. And, and from that, you know, just infusing tons of capital and resources and technology into China, which I suppose you're, you're now arguing uh, is actually, that is what caused the Chinese China miracle. That was certainly contributory to it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, now, so then uh, I keep hearing, so I've been following right-wing media a lot lately, and they're all China hawks, of course. I've been following the MAGA movement pretty closely because I'm just fascinated by this, this phenomenon. But, you know, they're f obsessed with China. And um, they often recount or they list the, the institutions in America that are beholden, they say, to the CCP, you know, and they'll list universities, uh, cultural foundations, think tanks, you know, major corporations, media outlets, politicians, members of the Democratic Party, you know, and they'll say they're they're totally tied into the CCP. They're they're the servants of the CCP. Can you is that um, is that hyperbolic? And can you talk about the extent to which the CCP is um, has infused or is has influence in American in American culture. Yes, I, I I mean it's not that that isn't real. Yeah. I mean it is happening. There are those connections. Yeah. So pointing them out is I mean you're pointing to truths, but if you're not pointing it in the full context, you don't get the full picture. So let's okay. drill down on a specific one specific story of that that's floating around quite a bit now. Of course, it's Rand Paul taking on Fauci about gain-of-function mm. research at Wuhan. Right. See, it's the CCP virus. It's the China virus. It came from Wuhan. There you go. So now we got to bomb those guys to smithereens because, look, they're unleashing bio-warfare on the world, mm -hmm. um, which, of course, follows a narrative that is documentable. 
and is true to some extent. I mean, there really was a Wuhan Institute of Virology. There really was working on weaponizing coronaviruses right there at what we are told is the epicenter of COVID-19. Whatever you make of all of that story, at least it certainly lines up. And then, you know, John Stewart gets on Colbert and <laughs> mm-hmm. reveals it to the American public who've never put two and two together before, but they need John Stewart to say it in right. a stupid way to make them go, hey, that is kind of crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> because people will unfortunately do what the media tells them to do. Maybe we should get into that. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, but that that story. OK, so those pieces are there and it is true and it is identifiable. But taking it out of context like that is not the story. So you have to look a little bit deeper. OK, Wuhan Institute of Virology, which had various international partners. The French were heavily involved in it pre-2014. And then uh, in the U.S. specifically, when the Obama administration, the Obama administration uh, made gain of function research illegal. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can't do that here in the US anymore. Hmm. All right. So now we'll use the Eco Health Alliance to fund research that's going on in Wuhan so that we can continue the same research that was being called out in 2015 in Nature as this is crazy. We shouldn't be doing this. But it went on anyway. And oh, yeah, look where we are. Um, but where was that money coming from? And even if you look in the papers that we're uh, publishing and talking about this research, of course, it always has the you know funding from NIH, funding from USAID, funding from EcoHealth Alliance in the footnotes, because that, that was where some of this was coming from. So to look at Wuhan as China, and that's the Chinese them there doing this, is, of course, going to be a partial narrative. So when you start expanding it out, you start to encounter moments of aporia in the story that aren't explained from that 2D system, like Charles Lieber, who was this researcher, uh, this uh, virus slash uh, uh, technology, various kinds of technocratic sort of um, uh, research, uh, who was caught up in the Thousand Talents Chinese program, where they literally have this program to recruit various uh, academic personnel Mm. from around the world. Maybe you're one of them <laughs> uh, to, uh, to, to, of course, work ultimately in the service of CCP interests, presumably, right? right. Why else would they be recruiting these people? And right. so he gets caught up and gets uh, thrown, thrown in jail at any rate, uh, arrested and, and put on, uh, indicted, should I say, uh, by the DOJ. And there's, there's a bit of brouhaha about that. See, I knew it. These Chinese are everywhere and they're getting all these academics. But then f- missing from that part of the story is, okay, well, Okay, Thousand Talent Program, yeah, he was working with the Chinese government in some capacity, but also he was working with um, people like the co-founder of Moderna, Mm. uh, literally co-wrote papers (laughs) with him talking about how to uh, create technology for monitoring people's individual heartbeats from uh, remote locations and just creepy research Mm. like this. Uh, I can't remember specifically, but I I did cite one of uh, Charles Lieber's specific papers working on essentially embedding transistors in the human body and this kind of stuff. That that kind of research, um, that web kind of gets lost because no, it's just China. It's just China. And so we don't have to look at any other aspect of that type of research or what's going on. We just have to look at China as the boogeyman. Let's just bomb them. That'll solve it all. That'll take care of the Charles Liebers of the world, the the, the Modernas of the world? No, actually, it won't take care of that. So maybe there's a deeper level to this. The virus you're suggesting was created by the the transnational people that you've been talking about, not not China, not a nation state. Right. Well, I'm talking about within the narrative that we've been presented anyway. Um, right. You know, I, I don't know what has or has not been created in what lab, but I do know that at the very least, if we talk about the Wuhan lab 
in a decontextualized way like that, we mm-hmm. can be led towards war rhetoric. And this was something I was specifically warning about years ago, um, back in 2017, I want to say, when I was in Denmark for the Open Mind Conference and I delivered a talk on echoes of World War I, uh, China, the US, and the next great war. And uh, I, I did warn that in that in that this perspective today, as I was speaking in 2017, it sounds kind of ridiculous, outlandish, that you're going to be ginned up into hatred of the Chinese people. I mean, most people don't care particularly about the Chinese people. It wasn't a big political issue at that time. Mm-hmm. At that moment, it wasn't a big... But I, I was saying, you're going to be ginned up into it, and there's going to be all sorts of propaganda, and it's going to get to the point where the social pressure to conform, are you, are you on board with the Chinese, is going to be almost overwhelming. But it is extremely important that we understand the bigger the sort of the deeper nature of what is happening right now, or we will be caught up in the war propaganda exactly as we were with World War I. And that was what my World War I conspiracy uh, documentary was about, was trying to show the sort of the broader, uh, we've only ever, to the extent that it was ever covered, in, at least in my education, it was just, oh yeah, the crazy German Kaiser was kind of a warmonger and started things off and it was Archduke Ferdinand and whatever, blah, 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 world war. No, no, no. There was a deep concerted effort to gin up war and to get the public on board with that war. So much of the propaganda industry that we have today comes from world war one. It was developed and refined. There were, there were literally ministers of propaganda and all of that being instituted at the time. Now, what are we seeing in the prop in the lead up to world war three? or what could be a World War III is that same type of propaganda machine is being ramped up again and people are going to get more and more caught up into it the deeper they insert themselves into this narrative. But wait a second, why are we gonna have a war with China if the collaborationists who are very powerful people at the heads of major institutions are opposed to war with China? Right, well, are they opposed to war with China? So again, this goes back to what the fundamental sort of nature of the game is and what they're really going for. Mm -hmm. What they want is complete control over as many people, human cattle, as possible. Mm -hmm. The eugenicists, the psychopaths we've talked about in our previous conversation (laughs) Mm -hmm. genuinely are looking at this as we are the pawns on this board and we want to control these pawns and literally control their movements, their actions, what they say or what they think even. At any Mm -hmm. level we can control them, we want to control them. How do we control as many people as possible? Now that might involve some sort of power sharing system where I I go back, I I raise it in every single interview I ever do, but I got to again, 1984, Eurasia, East Asia, Oceania, they're at war. Oh, question mark. Well, we're told we're at war and bombs rain down sometimes. And we're told it comes from East Asia. No, Eurasia. Uh, Well, whoever we're at war at with this, this week, uh, that form of power sharing agreement is a nice way of conceptualizing what that might look like. Okay. Um, yeah, they're the enemy. And so we're going to set up this system, but it doesn't have to be that. It could also be actual warfare if and when the calculus is made that that would be the easiest or the best way to achieve that level of overall control. And I think uh, from my perspective, as much, and again, I don't have documentation for this, so just take it as my my own personal analysis, but from every all the reading and research I've done into the mentality of these types of people, I think the point at which they make the calculation that they would be able to get away with it, actually wage hot war and get away with it, I think they would try to do so. At the very least, there are people embedded in the system, including some of those crazy dogs on a leash that they have that mm-hmm. could get off the leash. Sure. Um, you look That's back true. in history at the Lemnitzers and other insane people who were there <laughs> in the Cold War, the Cold Warriors, right, to mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I am not going to psychologize Lemnitzer, but he seemed to really believe in that. And he certainly had no compunction. He would have unleashed World War Three or World War Three. Yeah, he would have yeah. really unleashed nuclear warfare if he had been allowed. Um, instead, he got canned by Kennedy after Northwoods and started Operation Gladio in Europe. But that's OK. A whole other... Right, right, right. Um, well, so again, though, I'm I'm not sure why we're going to go to war with China, because you've done incredible work, I think, recently on the um i thought this was fascinating and amazing the um the military arsenals of china and the united states and how similar they look <laughs> yeah Can we talk about that <laughs> yeah 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 uh so the resource for this would be an article i wrote called china's suspiciously american arsenal and um and I, you don't have to speculate about it you literally look at the pictures and it's literally the same design on drones on uh on planes on various uh radar scanners military uh, uh military weapons of various sorts mm -hmm. and um as i point out uh, in that article uh, even popular mechanics had to point out with regard to a, a uh, propaganda video that the uh, i believe the pla navy had released about one of their latest new whatever it was at the time mm -hmm. um uh, some naval vessel or something they were showing off and they noted in even in popular mechanics they noted that the screens are displaying information in english which <laughs> makes you wonder is this do you think this was natively developed in china or do you think they're using american technology or something well obviously i think we know where that's coming from and as i pointed out in a recent conversation uh with whitney webb that i had um there's no it's no mystery where this is coming from it's been reported over and over in military.com and other mainstream news sites israel has been transferring american military wow. technology to china for decades now wow. uh, oh look now china has an f-16 clone where did they get that oh that's right israel sent, uh, sold it to them or all of these specific instances that we can point to so that is taking place and that might be sort of, again, part of the calculation if there is a hot war scenario, which again, I want to say, I, I believe, I, maybe it was before we started recording, but you were saying that, you know, these people aren't all powerful or whatever. Yeah. I agree. Th this isn't all powerful. They can't control everything. And there can be real crazy people within the two-day cold warrior system that really can start uh, what becomes a hot war. Um, so there, there's that chance. But also I, the calculation may be well, yes, it's our technology that they're getting. Oh, you know, they've got the F-16. They've got the, you know, this particular mm -hmm. drone, but they don't have the rod from God or whatever. Again, <laughs> how do we possibly know what is concealed beneath the 17 layers of secrecy at DARPA or what have you? But I'm sure there is military technology that is exists that we do not know about and that potentially the Chinese don't know about. So Israel transferred U.S. technology to China, to the Chinese military? That's how it happened? Yes. Not, okay. not just once, not yeah. just as some sort of one-off, as a concerted thing that's been reported right. over and over and over. And I've cited um, some of those specific things uh, in my uh, work in the past, but uh, I'll just give an example, just pull it up. Um, Military.com in 2013, report Israel passes U.S. military technology to China. I'm talking at that time about MQ-1 predators and other specific technology. But as I say, this has been reported since at least the 1990s. And then there is also things going back to the Clinton administration with regards to um, certain chips that were allowed to pass to the Chinese that could be used in a nuclear weapons program and things like this. So this has been a uh, it's been reported out in the open, but not really followed as some sort of, you know, story we really need to report on can for you, the last few decades. Can you do me a favor and tell Donald Trump about this? Because <laughs> he's a he's a big, big, big fan of Israel, thinks Israel's just the second greatest nation on Earth. And he thinks China is the worst nation on Earth. So he needs to 
he needs to deal with this little contradiction. Yes, and he also appointed people like Peter Navarro, who's this crazy China hawk of you know, death by China and books like that that I talked about in my presentation in Denmark. I, uh, I watch the war room, Steve Bannon's war room every day uh, because I'm following this emergent movement that is about to take over the Republican Party and will shape American politics for generations. So I follow it every day. But yeah, I uh, so I get all my China news from them, but it's um, they love them some Israel and they hate China. And it mm. is this is a big fat contradiction right in the middle of that worldview for them that I would love to present to them sometime. And I'm I'm sort of like. I don't really care one way or another about them. I just find them fascinating. But this is something I would like for them to deal with. Um, their their love of Israel is a bit unseemly and I think a little bit uh, blinkered too. Uh, Israel, yeah. So um, let's talk about more institutions that are cooperating with, allied with, influenced by China, by the CCP at least. Universities. So I was teaching in universities in the 90s and 2000s, and I noticed somewhere around the mid 2000s, a lot of Chinese students suddenly in my classes. What's this about? I never really cared. You know, they weren't very interesting. They weren't they didn't seem to belong there. They didn't speak the language very well. They had no idea what we we're talking about. They weren't used to talking in class. They weren't talk, used to talking to authorities. So it seemed like a very cynical thing going on here that the universities were doing this for money. These were like rich kids in China, the new the new bourgeoisie of the Chinese upper class. And uh, but I've been finding out since then from the war room and other people like you um, that there's much more going on. In fact, the colleges I worked for, Occidental College, had a formal relationship with I forget which one, one of the universities in China. That's very common. Right. And I've heard that Harvard is way deep into the CCP and vice versa. Yeah. Can you just talk more about this? You know, in the studio, the Hollywood studios, I mean, how deep and how big is this? Right. Well, the, uh, the academic side of it is not something I've deeply researched into, but as I say, I do know about the thousand talents program, which is a formal program started in 2008, I believe um, that has uh, uh, a thousand innovative 1000 talents plan to recruit uh, Chinese scholars below 55 years of age and young scholars below 40 years of age. But there's also a foreign thousand talents program that's specifically aiming at foreign academics and researchers to recruit them into some form of partnership. And that could be either to specifically recruit them into Chinese academia or into some sort of short term relationship of you know research sharing and that sort of thing um, where they'll literally be paid by the Chinese government. Hey, for doing my research, sure, well, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that I know that the, that sort of connection is insidious. And we hear, I mean, obviously the, the thing that the mass public is, associates with and, and sees on the daily basis are sports and movies yep. being mm -hmm. increasingly dominated by concerns about, well, what would the Chinese government say? Yeah. So Red Dawn can't be about, I mean, it can't be about China, obviously. Right. Well, uh, Korea, maybe uh, North <laughs> Korea doesn't have much to do. Oh, they hacked Sony, right? North Korea hacked Sony. Yeah. So we better be careful about that. Um, but uh, we see that with regards to movies. We see that with regards to sports and obviously NBA players and others being told, don't badmouth China. Don't yep. say anything wrong about your Chinese overlords, which yep. again, just gives an indication. I mean, that is a good indication of the sort of deeper layer of financial interests that are predicated on not upsetting the Chinese too much. And I think that's the level at which I would associate a lot of those, at least those types of programs and, 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 and pressures that we see at our level of the power pyramid. That's the financial motivation of people involved in business relationships. That's not necessarily the 3D collaborationists uh, at the deeper level. Mm -hmm. What about mainstream media outlets? 
why would they be in, why would they be motivated to protect China? Excellent question. Yeah. Because yes, this goes to the heart of something that I'm deeply interested in and deeply thinking about at the moment in preparation for something that's coming up. Uh, Mainstream media, yes, and the role that it plays in propaganda, generally speaking, obviously, but specifically with war propaganda. Yeah. Now, here's here's the thing to understand. To the extent that we think of mass media as being as being these, I mean, do we even think of them as corporate entities? We think of whoever, Rachel Maddow or uh, mm. uh, Andrew mm-hmm. Cuomo, Chris Cuomo, whichever Cuomo, mm, Chris. <laughs> or these people, <laughs> Anderson Cooper, whoever, we mm. think of these people as being the media, but they are not. They are beholden to corporate institutions right. that have corporate shareholders and are presided over by boards. Right. And when you start looking at the board level and who's associated to what, uh, you might start to see the tie-ins to the, again, the business motivation for the collaboration side yeah. of the argument. Uh, well, clearly there are business interests that are beyond here. So when you're looking at NBC, at least back in the day, I have to check on this, but you're, I mean, you should be thinking General Electric yeah. and what right. side is their bread buttered on and what kind of deals do they have with China? And do they, were they investing in research and development in the 90s in China that may be predicated on, say, not airing certain information about China? And the, uh. the specific example that I can point to from my recent research, as I say, was that Bloomberg report on the eight immortals that got quashed by Michael Bloomberg and the uh, the editors there at Bloomberg.com because specifically because they were being told by the Chinese government, don't go there. Okay, done. And they fired the reporter. They went after the reporter's wife, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff that's been reported on since then. So um, this is this is the level at which news is happening. It's not, you know, it's not some gumshoe reporter out on the street just trying to see what's happening in the world today. It is corporations that are deciding we will talk about this, we will not talk about that. Mm. So I think that's the way we have to see it. And and in that regard, we can look at the specific interest, financial interests of the board members of these various corporations that run these various corporate media entities. Mm. That makes sense to me. I like that. I will do that. Everyone should look at the boards of these media outlets. What, um, when do you, where do you locate the origin of mass media? When did mass media begin? You know, it's a good question. You could go as far back as the Gutenberg revolution itself. You could say that the movable type printing press and people will quibble, well, Gutenberg didn't really invent any of that. Blah, 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 whatever. We all Mm -hmm. know. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the movable type printing press became a thing in Strasbourg around that time in the 1600s. So how did that shape society? How did that create the ability for widespread distribution of printed material? How did that change the type of printed material that was being printed? Because before that point, if you're copying things out by hand, you ain't just gonna be copying out the latest work by Joe Schmo. You're gonna be Mm -hmm. copying out whatever ancient text that people have venerated for thousands of years. Suddenly you have the ability to make text easily and freely available. So suddenly it changes the sort of information that's getting fed out. And then from that, you get the periodicals and the the news leaflets and that emerge and, and start to coalesce into newspapers as we know them. So you could situate this story back hundreds of years, but really I think mass media as we understand and know it today really started to emerge in the late 19th century with the development and the maturation of telegraphy, which led mm. to the news agencies. Suddenly you could get a Reuters or a, I think Wolf was one of them, or there was a few in Europe that could 
form agencies because they had um, telegraph posts in various countries. And so they could um, essentially get news from what's happening in France today, what's happening in Germany today, what's happening in England today. And they could get that and then distribute it out the same day or the next day anyway. Um, so that was an important part of this, the idea, the formation of this, what we now think of today as the news. Hmm. So that's the, that's where I start to situate mass media is the, okay. the formation of those technologies and the coming together. And then obviously taking shape in the 20th century. And that yep. took shape in specific, specific ways, specific legal contexts, the 1927 Radio Act, the 1934 Communications Act, other uh, debates mm -hmm. that were being had at that time that resound with us to this very day. Um, a fascinating book, I'm, as you can see, I'm in the midst of reading right now, uh, An Aristocracy of Critics, talking about uh, Luce Hutchins Niebuhr and the committee that re redefined freedom of the press. Hmm. talking about this committee that no one knows about today. Who's ever heard of it? But in the mid-1940s, Henry Luce of Time, Inc. Yeah. Time, Inc. Keep yeah. that in mind. It right. was a corporation, right? There you go. Um, funded because he was so concerned about this question of press freedom and First Amendment and these sorts of issues. He funded this scholarly panel of people that came together for this committee. They met over the course of a few years and issued this report on freedom of the press and what it means. That is actually a fascinating story. And it's the exact exact types of things that we talk about today. Oh, people are in their little bubbles and Republicans only listen to Republicans and Democrats wow. only listen to Democrats. And should the government step in and how can they step in? And wow. would that be against the First Amendment? Maybe <laughs> the First Amendment means the government has to step in to create the space for free speech. So they have to regulate in order to create. Free. And all these, I mean, oh. the exact same types of arguments wow. we're having today, they were having 70, 80 years ago and more. Um, so there, that I think is such a fascinating story that really fills in the, the blanks about how we end up at this spot today and where we're likely headed unless we actually know this history. As they say, you're doomed to repeat it unless you know it. So I think mm -hmm. it is extremely important that we understand how these corporate entities that give us the news and even the news itself as a concept, how did that arise so that we can question it, interrogate it, see what is worth keeping and what is not worth keeping as we go forward with technologies that we can now only scarcely start to imagine that are going to, again, reconceptualize our, our view of the world. I mean, mass media, uh, I've often said the internet revolution is the biggest thing since the Gutenberg revolution, but in fact, we may not even be there yet. I mean, it may be the virtual reality revolution that mm -hmm. will really be, because that will be a truly new medium in a real sense of having a different way of experiencing um, uh, a narrative. And so well, what, what will news look like in the VR realm? You know, I mean, th these are sorts of things that might sound outlandish from today, but as I say, just like when I was talking in 2017 about you're going to be whipped up into Chinese war hysteria. Well, I'm telling you, you're going to be whipped up into, Hey, this is the new thing. This is news. This is how we get our information now. And if you just stumble into that, you will probably be led by the same forces that have led you here. What, why is it important to study the history of mass media? Uh, as as I say, if we don't um, consciously face the, uh, the 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 specifics of the history of how this particular person acting as this particular uh, role in publisher or editor created this particular thing that um, I cursed yellow journalism and how that contributed mm -hmm. to the early years of the uh, the American imperialist enterprise, as it were, and uh, the wars, ginning up wars and things like that. If we don't understand that history, then we can't interrogate the deeper question, mm. which is a question that I am very much interested in, which is the question of what is the news? What 
is that? What does it mean? How did we come up with this conception that we told, I think it's like fish swimming in water. Does anyone question the news? Oh, what's the, what's the news today? But what is that concept? Where did it come from? How do we conceptualize that? And how different would that have been to someone a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago? What would that have meant? And how does that change our relations with each other? That's a fundamental issue that affects everything. And I mean everything, mm-hmm. including the whole China war narrative and whatever's going on there. All of that is predicated and steeped in this system of delivering information that has developed through mass media. And so if we can at least consciously understand that phenomenon as a phenomenon with specific historical precedents, and there's a specific set of relations that led to that, then we can see, start to conceptualize and, and question, interrogate, uh, and potentially construct something better, construct something different. Because I don't want to say, sound black pill about all of this. Mm-hmm. I think, obviously, we wouldn't be talking today if it weren't mm-hmm. for these incredible technologies that have enabled this new right. form of media to, to arise. There are great things that can happen, but we mm-hmm. have to be aware of the history so that we can go forward into it in a conscious way. You said at the beginning of this interview that your the big question you've always been interested in is how how does power operate in society now? or has it um how did the emergence of mass media affect the way that power operates <laughs> uh yeah big question and yeah. one that i hope to be addressing I in know. my upcoming uh, course yeah. but um let's look super big picture you could look at something like the gutenberg revolution as being the foundation of the uh of the reformation would you yes. have had a reformation without the gutenberg printing press Right. Would that have happened? I mean, that's an example of how society can be completely transformed yeah. by a technology of communication. Absolutely. And that's the paradigm that I'm thinking with regards to the internet. Mm-hmm. This could be a flowering of information and understanding and awareness and participation and all of the things that we were promised mm-hmm. back in the 90s of information superhighway. It is not heading in that direction right now. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone sees the sort of the bars on the technological prison are closing. But before they get there, we can hopefully do what we can to halt that process and consciously use this technology in a way that will lead to that promise, the flowering of human society rather than its closing. Um, As has been pointed out, yes, Gutenberg may have uh, allowed, sort of brought uh, this incredible transformation in communication that allowed all of these people to talk to each other and opened up this huge conversation. It also, uh, as a result, a lot of, well, Everyone who's literate today is probably literate uh, because of that original revolution hundreds of years ago. Not before that point, it was only the scholars and the the monks who could read. Why would you need to read? And I mean, no, of course not. But now literacy is widespread. But that also then introduces a new vector for propaganda. So, um, you know, they they try to close the bars on that prison as soon as they're opened. And there's so much that flows from that, so many important things that we can learn about the process going forward and how to hopefully unlock the bars of that prison or stop them from closing altogether. Beautifully put. I love that. Yeah. So um, we're going to produce, we're going to make a million James Corbett's. That's what Renegade University is going to do. And we're going to start with your course coming up in November, History of the Mass Media with James Corbett. Go to renegadeuniversity.com slash courses to enroll for that. James, thank you for this. This has just been amazing as always. I, your work is just absolutely essential and I'm so pleased and glad you're a part of Unregistered and Renegade University and just thank you for everything you've done. 
Can't wait. Well, for I appreciate course. you having me on. These are important topics. I wish more people were addressing them. I don't care if you agree with me. I just want this to be part of the conversation because I think we are heading into some exceptionally serious times. So I hope people are at least consciously heading into them. That's what I'm afraid of. Yes. Um, thank you, sir. Uh, I will see you in class. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right, James. Bye-bye. This is the Unregistered Podcast, and I'm Thaddeus Russell. To join the new Renegade University, go to renegadeuniversity.com. To join the new Unregistered Underground, the supporting listeners group for the podcast, go to unregisteredunderground.com. Thanks for listening.